God is God. He can do whatever he likes. Uh, if he can't do a miracle, then he's not God. I mean, here's another argument for the reliability of the New Testament, the vivid, stark, brutal nature of the way the crucifixion comes out and grabs you. Jesus was always human and always divine. And you can get a bit misled by focusing on one or the other. And it's quite a challenge to keep both of them together. Well, welcome to the Ask podcast. This is number two, and we're back with Greg Sheridan. And I might as well warn you right now, if you're expecting uh, diversity and variety, we're going to be back with Greg for quite a while. Um, we will have some other people here on, but we're, we are looking, and I'm, I'm holding up to the, to the camera this book, uh, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, which I strongly recommend you get because as you follow along in this podcast, then you'll be able to follow the discussions. So, Greg, how are you guys down in Melbourne? Well, sick of lockdown. Uh, I'm not making any judgment about whether it was good, bad or indifferent as public policy, but we're sick of it now. We will enjoy getting out and, uh, you know, meeting people other than our spouse or whatever. You know, it's a joy to be with my spouse, let me say, but uh, I, I think uh, she deserves a victorious cross for spousal fidelity and putting up with me for kind of 260 days or something and nobody else, you know, uh, it's a cruel and inhuman punishment. It is. The, the, I mean, a record you, I'm sure you don't want, but you, I'm sure you know this, you are now officially the most locked down city in the world. We in are indeed. Very un-Australian of us because Australia is a land of um, the middle register, you know, not of, uh, not of extremes. So uh, for us to be extreme lockdown champions is quite odd. Okay, let's go to the book and let's go to chapter one. And I, I must admit, I was shocked by it. I mean, genuinely so. And basically, I was shocked simply uh, by the end. I was actually very moved by it. But I was shocked simply by the fact that this is where you began. I did not expect that. So not from the excerpts I'd read and so on. So why did you begin with, as it's entitled, The Death of Jesus Christ? Well, David, uh, that's a kind of a big question. I'll try to give you a, a reasonable answer. Uh, so I try to write this book from first principles and as a journalist. No jargon, no pre-reading required, nothing like that. And uh, it's always struck me that the most radical claim of Christianity is, in fact, not the resurrection but the crucifixion, the idea that the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, everlasting God could suffer physical death, could come to, to earth as a human being, live as a human being and suffer defeat, humiliation, torture and death and something near to despair. I'm not trying to be uh, theologically controversial here, but Jesus plainly did not suffer despair, but he was tempted to despair just as he was tempted in the desert. And the the um, so it was unusual for me in the writing of this book to spend a couple of years in the New Testament and to read the books of the New Testament as whole books from start to finish, looking for their meaning and and uh, incident and uh, narrative and character. And the most uh, dramatic and visceral and terrible event in the New Testament and indeed the whole Bible is the crucifixion. And it's starkness. I mean, here's another argument for the reliability of the New Testament, the vivid, stark, brutal nature 
of the way the crucifixion comes out and grabs you. And I believe it is the central event in human history. And the, the other thing, the other reason I thought to start there was that, um, so the three great signposts in Jesus' life, Christmas birth, Good Friday death, and the Easter resurrection. Nobody can remember anything about their birth. We can only imagine the resurrection. We don't, we don't really have a sense of what that will be. But we all confront death. We're all going mm -hmm. to confront death. We can be sure of that. And um, you can tell uh, a tremendous amount about a person by the way they confront death. And uh, mm -hmm. Jesus gives us the example of how to live a perfect life. And he gives us an example, in a sense, of a perfect death. And I thought we needed to look that right in the face. Well, it's interesting because you read, in preparation for this, you you know, spent a year basically reading the Gospels and, and being absorbed by them. And, you know, you're, uh, you're an Australian journalist, so you're remarkably intelligent. And, and you, Irony alert, irony alert. <laughs> that's, that's for the Americans. No. <laughs> um, and I can't remember which American TV host it was who said, um, if Jesus Christ came back... Um, the one question I'd want to ask him, were you really virgin born? Because for me, that would change the deal. Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I have no, no trouble with that belief at all. Yeah. Log you, you say some things about logic and reason and, you know, facts and proof and so on. Um, there are people who would look. Now, I, to me, I, I, I don't understand them because I, I don't think it is illogical. But there are people who go, oh, come on. You know, virgins don't give birth. So, well, David, you know, God doesn't become man. You know, human beings don't rise yeah. after three days. The water doesn't become wine. It's uh, uh, so, David, we mentioned in one of our other conversations, just to give a personal take on it, I myself have never had any trouble with belief. I've had enormous trouble living up to the most elementary standards of Christianity, and I would want nobody to uh, judge Christianity by my life. But a few things seem to follow almost logically. If God is God, he can do whatever he likes. Uh, if he can't do a miracle, then he's not God. Uh, I mean, God, it seems to me, respects his universe and respects the laws of his universe, and the universe uh, has its sort of uh, its coherence and it's inner logic, but mm -hmm. it is um, not in the normal order of things for God to become man. So it, so I, I love all Christians and, well, I, you know, maybe I don't, but, I mean, I try to anyway. I do my best. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not critical of any Christian, but I don't see how you can believe in Christianity and not believe in miracles. That's one reason I put angels in there too because mm -hmm. some, I don't know what it would be, 20 or 30% of the Bible is taken up with miracles and angels. So if that's all baloney, you're saying from the start you should believe in this book, but we're going to rule 20 or 30% of it all as falsehood. Well, if that's the case, I'd rather be at the races. I have not, no interest in it. If it's all baloney, just forget about it. But <laughs> I don't see why the virgin birth is problematic if you accept miracles. And I don't see how you can accept Jesus and not accept miracles. I, I don't see how you can really deal with the Old Testament and the New Testament and not accept miracles. And if you accept miracles then, I, you know, that doesn't seem to me to be the most unlikely miracle. I mean, you could make a a case against the wedding feast of Cana and say, why would God bother himself with 
do the guests at a wedding have enough wine to drink, you know? But, you know, there's a wonderful um, passage in uh, Evelyn Waugh's Sword of Honor trilogy where where um, the hero, Guy Crouchback, is discussing his family with a friend, an older friend who's interested in genealogy, and the friend says, well, you can see divine providence preserving your family. And Guy Crouchback says to him, do you really think God would be concerned with the preservation of a minor English uh, Catholic family? And his interlocutor says, well, we know that not a sparrow falls from a tree that God is not concerned about it. So, of course, he's concerned with the preservation of your family. And, um, you know, I think um, a response to miracles which questions God's generosity or, you know, his ability to, um, to be colloquial about it, to do whatever he likes, doesn't seem to me actually to be logical. Uh, I can understand rejecting God altogether, but I can't really understand accepting God, but then saying, but God can only do these things which I chart for him as admissible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one because uh, it, it didn't take long. What, we're not nine minutes into it and we've got to Chesterton already. He has a brilliant argument in which he says, it is not the believers who have a doctrine for miracles, it's the unbelievers who have a doctrine against. That's right. You know, People who believe in miracles believe in them on the basis of evidence. The evidence People who, yeah. who reject miracles reject them on the basis of dogma. They they cannot happen. Yeah. So, I mean, anyone who's listening to this or watching this and and you want to reflect on this a bit more, I I wrote a chapter on miracles in Magnificent Obsession. And if you email me, I'm quite happy to to email you that chapter for free because we look at all of that. And um, but we we need to come on to the the death. I I love this quote in the book, uh, page 14. Of course, it's not on the basis of historical evidence that people believe. But here's the rub nor is it on the basis of the historical evidence that people disbelieve. I think that's quite an important insight. I, I don't think I've ever come across a, a someone who doesn't believe who says, I don't believe because I've seen historical evidence that disproves. No, that's right, David. And, um, you know, the task of, um, well, one of the tasks that I try to present here is to show that there is no reason, there's no uh, obstacle in reason to believing in Jesus. It's belief in God is perfectly rational, consistent with everything we know about the physical universe. Belief in the New Testament is perfectly rational. And, you know, the chapter after this is a chapter about the historicity of the New Testament. Now, I quote a lot of biblical scholars giving us confirming evidence, but I'll tell you the truth, David, if the biblical scholars all said that it was baloney, I'd still believe it, and I'd think that the biblical scholars were baloney. But as a matter of fact, the biblical scholars have got it right. So that's interesting. Let's just register that fact that the biblical scholars have got it right. Similarly, once you accept the proposition of God, so to speak, there is nothing uh, illogical or there's no internal contradiction in Christianity. There are paradoxes and mysteries and so on. But, uh, but it's all consistent with everything. I mean, human beings have always had um, an intuition of eternal life. You know, there's a beautiful book by um, um, a philosopher, a priest called Brendan Purcell called From Big Bang, um, uh, I forget what it's called, To Big Bang or something. It's, it has Big Bang in the title. But he makes the point that um, from the earliest human graves we have, from the earliest burial sites, from 50,000 years ago, 
there are artifacts buried alongside the people who are buried for them to take into eternal life with them, you know, tools and so forth for them to use in the afterlife. Human beings, in a sense, have always expected uh, the afterlife. So um, that great human intuition, I think, is soundly based. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and you, you say uh, on the following page, here's the thing. Faith in Jesus is not against facts, against evidence, against science. It's not irrational. It doesn't contradict any established facts. And I think that's very important because there's a kind of meme that people have that faith and science are opposed. Now, uh, both in your Christian tradition and in mine, uh, you know, Scottish Presbyterianism, yours, Catholicism, the, the idea that faith and science are contradictory is a hysterical one. You know, but we, 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 we've never, ever thought that. You know, we've always believed that God has his book of nature and the book of scripture and so on. And what you say there reminds me of the kind of circular argument I came across on the Richard Dawkins website when someone said to me, I would like to have an intelligent discussion with someone who believes in God. But he then went on to say, but someone who believes in God then must believe in the supernatural. Therefore, they cannot be intelligent. So I, can, I said, well, you're kind of, it's a circular argument. You are, you are, you know, I always say that many of the more fundamentalist atheists to me, when they say prove God, they then say they won't accept any proof. Uh, absolutely. I've remember- so, sorry, yeah, sorry, carry on. No, 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 you, you carry on. I've- uh, just, be- just before responding to your interesting remark, I've remembered the title of that book, My Senior Mantra Has Passed. It's called From Big Bang to Big Mystery by, uh, by Brendan Purcell. But that's, that's right, David. So, uh, you know, the beautiful line in Les Murray's poem, snobs try to mind us of religion these days. It, it's not very often an argument. It's not a rational argument. It's just a declaration. Uh, so Richard Dawkins, I always think, is like a, um, without, I mean, no disrespect to the Anglican community here, but he's like an Anglican bishop in, an, in a Trollope novel who says, you know, or he's like the Anglican bishop's wife. The bishop thinks, and I agree that God would not do this, you know, and half the time you're reading Dawkins and he says, uh, you know, God wouldn't spend 14 billion years creating a universe just for us. And you think, well, first of all, how would Dawkins know what God is doing? That's not a rational argument. That's just a, a prejudice. And second of all, strikes me as absolutely characteristic of God that he'd spent 14 billion years uh, preparing a beautiful garden for us. This, though, it, it has one interesting sidelight. People say, can you be open-minded about biblical scholarship? And I almost think maybe you can't, because to be really open-minded, you have to accept the possibility of the supernatural. But once you accept the possibility of the supernatural, you've sort of you're in a different camp from the mm-hmm. sort of uh, from the narrow materialist. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea of a, a kind of a mythical figure who accepts the possibility of the supernatural but does not believe in the supernatural, I suppose it would be possible to construct such a figure, but they'd be a pretty rare specimen. They would be rare, and you know, you and I both, you know, I mean, my. Um I guess academic speciality would be history. I, I would use all the historical tools to examine what the Bible says and so on. I, I can still believe in the in the supernatural. I mean, we and you as a journalist, you use your journalistic tools to, as you say, to read. Um, and yet you can also still believe that. Now, let, let's come on to the cross because there are one or two aspects I particularly wanted to look at. And one is to do with COVID, uh, which... You know, it's it's funny. I find that the Bible keeps applying to our contemporary culture, and we don't need to twist it. 
And when you mention um, COVID, you're not twisting things because you're talking about on the cross, one of the things that you've noticed is the element of separation. Do you want to say something about that? Absolutely. So, David, um, I guess you and I would share the belief that one reason for Jesus' life is to show us what a perfect life is, what a perfect human being is, what a good human being is. And as I say, you can't fake your own response to your own death. And there are elements of Jesus' death which are similar to the COVID death. So the most terrible thing about the COVID death really is the isolation that it imposes on the person dying and those nearest to them. Now, I'm sure you're the same as me. I've had relatives die in hospices and hospitals and, and friends and so on. And I'm so often struck in the end by their selflessness. Uh, I, I had an uncle uh, die in a hospital and almost the last word he said was uh, solicitous to his wife. He, he said to one of the nurses, won't you get my wife a cup of tea? Uh, you know, I had a a woman who died who was a dear friend, and she's, the last word to me was, now you'll keep in touch with my husband, won't you? You'll, you'll have a cup of coffee with him from time to time and so on. Now, Jesus' death on the cross is a, is a brutal, humiliating, terrible death. But one thing that it shares in common with the COVID death is this isolation. There he is up on the cross, and uh, typically most of his male followers are not brave enough to be at the foot of the cross with him, only John. Typically, the women are more brave than the men, so there are a few women there and only one bloke. Um, but they're all isolated for him, from him. It's as if they're on the other side of a glass screen in a hospital looking in and uh, waving at the, you know, trying to signal their, their solidarity. Um, and then what is he thinking about as he dies? One thing is he's thinking about is his mother. And he, uh -huh. he looks down and he says to Mary, woman, this is your son, meaning John. And he says to John, this is your mother. Now, there are all kinds of theological implications here, but just reading the story as a human story, he is concerned with the welfare of his mother. And he's making quite a practical arrangement for his mother at the last. He also feels a terrible alienation of acute suffering and prolonged agony. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I accept absolutely that this is the first sentence of a psalm which starts out in alienation and ends up in a kind of triumph. But it's also what Jesus is really feeling. His divinity does not insulate him from the human suffering. And uh -huh. again, referring to our favourite author, Chesterton, he says Christianity is the only religion where God nearly becomes an atheist. He doesn't, of course, become an atheist. He doesn't succumb to despair, but he feels the temptation to despair. And then finally, he he does two other things. He says to the good thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's his divinity shining through on the cross. He has the authority and he has the compassion to offer salvation to the good thief. And then he says to his father in heaven, into your hands, I commend my spirit. It is finished. There's nothing more that I can do. And that is the attitude that I think Christians try to take to death. I mean, the one difference between the normal Christian attitude to death and Jesus' attitude is that the normal Christian is also kind of saying, I'm very sorry for all the things I did wrong. Okay, Jesus doesn't need to say that. But he is with the, with the uh, common Christian experience saying, 
I'm very concerned for the people I love that I'm leaving behind. Father in heaven, I am yours. I have no more agency, no more clever words, nothing more to offer. I'm just yours. I commend my spirit into your hands. Do with me what you will. And um, I do think that is uh, that has a resonance with the death people suffered in COVID. Yeah, and I think the idea of separation. So what you're you're talking about there, I mean, it's like there's layers and layers and layers as we as as we go, go into this deeper, and that aspect of separation, particularly, uh, I loved what you said. Um, religious people in the most extreme moments always have scripture running through their heads. Jesus grew up steeped in the knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. And he's quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he finishes with Psalm 22 when he says it is finished. Yeah. Because that's really, that's the ending of Psalm 22. Yeah. And I think that that enormous separation, I mean, I, I heard it described this way. It was almost as if, the Trinity was split in two mm. or in three even, um, which, it, it, I mean, it didn't happen. But at that point on the cross, he did not feel the presence of any, every other time in Gethsemane at his baptism, every other time he felt the, the presence of, of, of his father. But at this point he didn't because he was dying for um, a reason. I mean, I, 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 again, let me quote you. In some certain ways, being divine might have made Jesus's job of being human, human even more taxing. And I love that because sometimes, you know, I'd go into a church and I would see a, um, a crucifix with Jesus on it. And he's very beatific, smiling. You know, it's almost Monty Python-esque, always look on the bright side of life. Mm. Whereas the reality was much more Mel Gibson, um, or there's, there was a, a Scottish artist who did a lot of paintings of the crucifixion after he became a Christian, again, um, Catholic background. And, and the, it was the, the ordinariness of the disciples and the agony of Jesus, you know, and I, and I feel that you, you've captured that very well. But we, we are, our, our time is running on. And I wanted to come to this big question that you raise at the end, which is, why did Jesus actually die? So... So, David, um, without pretending to be a professional theologian, but just a, just a, a regular journalist, so Jesus died for our salvation. He died to, to save us. And in a sense, you can say he died to put us on good terms again with God. But I believe all of Christianity typically is both very simple and a profound mystery. And the very simple truth sits beside the profound mystery. The simple truth is, Jesus came as a human being in solidarity with us to redeem us, to put us back on good terms with God, to redeem our original sin and to redeem all of our other sins. His solidarity with humanity was complete and perfect. So it was a solidarity in suffering. This is the kind of solidarity we all have. You know, if our spouse is sick, we try to sit up all night to offer them comfort and uh, consolation or a child or a parent or something. That's the essence of solidarity, is to stay with the person. And, um, but the, the specific doctrine of salvation varies from denomination to denomination. So I, I want to put my hand up with C.S. Lewis here and say, I don't really mind what your doctrine of salvation is. I know that Jesus saved us. And if you want to say it was, you know, substitutional atonement or whatever, that's okay. But I... I Take refuge in C.S. Lewis saying 
the specific theories as to how that salvation works, if they're helpful to you, go with them. But in terms of Christian belief, you don't really have to solve that puzzle. You just know that Christ did it to save us and to put us back on good terms uh, with God. Well, I'm, I, this is one area where I disagree with C.S. Lewis a bit. So um, I, I feel he was quite weak on this, actually, because I think there was a lot of argument about theories of the atonement, you know, whether it was a ransom paid to Satan, whether it was, you know, and, and I, I think we've made it too complicated. I mean, Paul says it beautifully. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That's of first importance. Oh, so that's a, that, that's a no-brainer. He died for our sins. And then Jesus talks about giving his life for his friends. Now, it, it, you can, as I say, there were various layers of this. So we can say that Jesus suffered to be alongside us. He suffered, in a sense, to show us how to die as well. You can argue all of that, the exemplary side. But I think you also have to accept that he was doing something and, no, uh, I accept that absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, I I regard that as part of the common common belief and core yes. so, Christianity. Yeah, you know, I mean, you your traditional Catholic Protestant theologians dare I even say them? You know, Augustine, um, Aquinas, Pascal, all of them. I mean, all the early church fathers. There wasn't one who didn't accept that Jesus died for our sins, and in a sense, died as our substitute. Now, where we get into some more, some more difficulty, and we, we don't have time to discuss all that here, is is the you know exactly how does that work? And I'm I'm with C.S. Lewis in this in saying, okay, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but um, and I'm a bit wary of people who have very neat and simplistic solutions or even analogies. This is a bit like the Trinity. All I know is that it does work. Absolutely, David, you've expressed it better than I did. That's exactly what I meant. Christ died for our sins. I'm not sure exactly how it works. I think I used some very clumsy journalistic phrase in the book, like saying precisely what the divine economy is within the Blessed Trinity. It's a bit beyond me. I don't know. But, of course, part of the general challenge of Christianity is there are some things that Christianity teaches us very clearly. These are the main truths. But there remain elements of mystery. And the fact yes. that we don't know everything is not a bar to living in in faith. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's like so. That that's like the Trinity, for example, and so on. And I just think the more I go on, the cross is so central, and the death of Jesus is so central, as you recognise that I would be quite wary of you, to be honest, if you said, "Oh, I've got this. I grasp all this." But equally, I'd be just as wary as if you said, oh, it's such a mystery, there's no use to any of it. Yeah, so that's uh, why, in my clumsy way, David, I try to say there's a simple truth and next to it is a great mystery. And you can't appreciate the truth without the mystery, and the mystery is only important because it accompanies a clear truth. And that's so you, that's a paradox yeah. that you find all the time in Christianity. Yeah, so you have a great thing here. We believe, this is quoting you, uh, we believe and we believe we know the truth, but we don't know everything about the truth. And I think that's that's exactly it. Do you know, there, there's a story about Karl Barth. I'm sure this is true. Um, he was in the United States, and he was this great theologian, you know, his church dogmatics and so on. I mean, if you've read them, you've never lived, I think. It's the ultimate in theological geekery. And th there are people who will listen to this and say, how dare you say that? You know, Barth was wonderful. But I, I, I find him a bit dull, to be honest. I find Aquinas more, even Aquinas more accessible, and that's really saying something. Um, but... but um, Bart was on a train and um, 
he was asked by journalists, you know, what's your theology? And they were expecting this huge thing. And, and, and apparently he just, he just simply said, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Uh, well, good on him. That's fantastic. <laughs> you know, fantastic. And I just thought that was, that was lovely. Um, listen, I'm, I'm going to read your last paragraph in conclusion, but um, is there anything more you want to add just for your last words on this? Two real quick thoughts, David. So echoing Bath, I read a lovely book by George Weigel years ago uh, on evangelical Catholicism, trying to make an interesting uh, uh, combination there. And he says, you know, if the church is wiped out, we lose all our buildings, all our money, all our institutions, and the Catholic Archbishop or, or any Archbishop of, of Washington is sitting in Lafayette Square or, or um, you know, uh, DuPont Circle, and as people walk by, he goes up to them and says, excuse me, sir, do you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins and is your saviour? He said the church will be living out its mission. That's that's one thought I offered you. I mean, you know, you can overcomplicate our mission a bit. The other thought I'd offer you is that the other thing I tried to um, tried to come to grips with in that chapter was this thing that Jesus was always human and always divine. And you can get a bit misled by focusing on one or the other. And it's quite a challenge to keep both of them uh, together all the time. There's a lovely book by Michael Casey called Truly Human, Truly Divine. It's a mystery that, you know, theologians have speculated on and commented on for thousands of years. But Jesus' divinity did not exempt him from the, the... the inconvenience, the untidiness and the suffering of life, nor did it diminish the joy of life, the joy that he took in friendship. But nor did his humanity ever rob him of his divinity, his ability to teach us the divine truth, to pardon the the good thief and so on. Now, this is pretty obvious to all believing Christians, but it struck me all over again as uh, as something remarkable. Well, I think, it, and I think it needs to strike us. I think one of the problems that many Christians have is that we hear doctrines and we nod our heads and we go, yes, I've got that. And actually we haven't because it's so amazing. So uh, John, for example, who was at the foot of the cross in his letter says, this is unbelievable. We've touched that which we've seen, that's what we've touched, you know, um, him we declare to you. And then he then talk, he, he then goes on to talk about the cross and the atonement and sin and everything. Greg, as always a joy, um, a couple of weeks' time, we'll do the same thing again. Um, I am, and hopefully by then you'll be out of lockdown uh, and we'll be uh, dancing in the streets here. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I'm going to leave with the last paragraph of this chapter, which I had highlighted and put underneath wow, because I just thought it was lovely. And it says this, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. We all have our cross. A perfect life looks perfect only from a distance. Flaws in a life invisible from far away are evident from close by and may be overwhelming for those inside the life. But whatever the flaws, we all also have the unbreakable promise of the new life that the one cross has brought us. So in a good charismatic Catholic Calvinist way, I say amen to that. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much, David. Thanks so much.